Hi, it's Shana here. Before this episode starts, I'm popping in with a quick reminder about our upcoming CEU on Thursday, May 16th on a person-centered approach to behavior management. School taught us a lot about ABA. However, the thing with ABA is that it's a science and it's constantly evolving. So a lot of what we learned back then doesn't always apply now. Today, we want to use a person-centered approach to behavior management, um, but what does that look like and how can our learners still make progress in this kind of approach? So join us live on Thursday, May 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time as Shira discusses how to use a person-centered approach to behavior management with your learners. This CEU is presented by our very own Shira Karpel. You can earn one learning CEU for ACE, QABA, or IBAO. Join us live at this event or to watch the recording asynchronously, go to howtoaba.com forward slash CEU. See you then. Hi, I'm Shira Karpow. And I'm Shana Gaunt, and we're board certified behavior analysts. At How To ABA, we provide practical resources, community, and support to ABA professionals. In each episode of our podcast, we will be having real conversations with real people sharing real stories about ABA. We'll share relevant strategies and actionable tips that will make us all better ABA practitioners. It's the ABA content you need that you're not going to learn in a textbook. For the next few podcasts, we wanted to give you a sneak peek into one of our membership mentorship meetings. During these monthly meetings, we answer questions and discuss relevant issues to today's BCBA. If you want to be on the next monthly membership call, become a member of the Behavior Resource. So welcome, everyone. Um, So our first question has to do with... um, She's got a four-year-old learner and they um, she gives them access to a requested item or activity and the learner pushes it away. There's a bit more content there that you should know. So she sets up like a first-end contingency, like first do this for me and then you can have the ball, for instance. And uh, the learner does what, she, what they're asked to do and she says, great, nice job. Now you get the ball. And then the learner throws the ball across the room and says, I don't want this anymore. Um, and she does this fairly consistently. Um, looks like it might be a function of attention um, or a counter control response of like, I just don't want this. Um, so what do we do? What kind of kind of stuff, possible answers, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it looks like what the person said in the question was that they threw the item that they were given as like a reinforcer and kind of made it into this, like they wanted a reaction or they wanted, they wanted, you know, the the IT or AB therapists like pretend to cry, those kind of things. So like, what do they do? Um, so what I wanted to address is that I see this pretty commonly where someone will say, you know, I'm really struggling with this learner where they just seem to be so attention seeking and they just want a reaction from me and I don't know what to do with them. And so I would say, well, what are their reinforcers? And the person would say, you know, well, they're working for things like balloons and, you know, bubbles and this toy ball. And I'm thinking, well, hmm, if they're very attention seeking, then that is their reinforcer. And I think sometimes we forget that we assume that preferences and reinforcers need to be objects. They need to be a toy or it needs to be, you know, something physical. And we forget all the other functions, right? That's one function, that's access. And so many other things are controlled by things like attention. Escape is a great reinforcer. If you complete this task, maybe you get to leave early, you know, we've used that as a reinforcer. Um, Using all of those different functions as reinforcers is going to be a lot more effective. So if this student 
said, you know, responded to that first end contingency and completed the first, then maybe what they really wanted was that, you know, that little game where like they pretended that they wanted something and then they threw it and then they get a reaction. And so use that as a reinforcer, like call it something or call it like the toy throwing game or the, you know, I pretend to cry game or whatever that looks like and put it into a format where they can, you know, kind of work for it. Um, And that could apply to so many different, you know, functions. It could be the escape, attention, whatever it is, don't get stuck on anything to be an object. Um, So that's what I would say to that. Like think about other reinforcers that are motivating for this student. I worked with a speech pathologist one time and her go-to elevator pitch when people said, what do you do for a living? She said, I play with kids. Um, I play with kids for a living. That's what I do. And I think so quickly we forget that, right? We're always about, well, you know, we use reinforcement, we break down tasks and we do this, we do that and we analyze ball. Simply, we should be playing with kids too, right? So it's not about offering them a ball or offering them this, but it's about how do we make this fun for them? And if reinforcement is attention, um, it's great. Like I've done lots of stuff with that before. So even like offering them a cookie and then I pretend to be a cookie monster and I'm modeling that and they're doing that obviously with parent permission, because you don't want kids eating cookies like Cookie Monster all the time. Um, But that could be a reinforcer or saying, you know, how do I make the bubbles that I'm giving you more fun than just me blowing them and you popping them? Um, So really getting creative. Sometimes it's not even about an object at all. It's just about, you know, me hiding behind a pillow and then going, boo, peekaboo, and being really, really fun that way. And um, that works a lot. And even with kids who people are like, I can't find a reinforcer. What is it? I can't find it. I can't find it. Sometimes we have to go back to this really basic play. And, you know, I don't want to compare an eight-year-old with no, you know, no known reinforcers to, you know, a one and a half or two-year-old. But at the same time, if you're looking at typical development and you're looking at kids who are, you know, 16, 18 months old, you know, what do they like? You know, they're giggling when you hide behind a pillow and play peekaboo. You know, they're giggling when, you know, you pretend that something is something else. Like I've got a pencil, I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to pretend it's a telephone. Um, all of those things and trying to be as silly as possible and pushing that envelope may help you with the, you know, instead of that first then contingency, it'll help you with like, oh yeah, it's not really an object that they're working for. It's it's really kind of me. Mm-hmm. And this brings us to another question, which I think would be a really good time to address it because one of the questions was about an RBT who really is amazing and does a great job, but anytime the child is on a break, she's doing like a personal stuff. Like the example was that she's knitting or she's doing some stuff that's her own thing. And the person asking the question would really like to see her engaging the client more and was asking for suggestions. And I think this is like a perfect example where we sometimes get a little bit too stuck in this like first then, like first you do something with me and then you go and do your own thing. And those things aren't related Um, and they really need to be, they really can be. And I think that the optimal way for a child to learn is that those aren't separate things, right? First of all, not all learning has to happen at a table. So that's not just the learning time. And the break time is also super valuable because that's where you tap into so much more of the social reinforcement and all of the stuff that's engaging that is so that you can create so much more motivation with if you're both engaged. Now, granted, it's it's very challenging, right? And I think the question was like, does this RBT herself need a break? And that's a, that's a valid concern. Give her the breaks. And if she's working for six hours straight, that's not realistic. But, you know, maybe schedule your session so that the RBTs don't get burnt out so that they're not feeling like, oh my God, every time the child leaves the table, I need to like, you know, recover. Um, 
So definitely schedule your sessions accordingly so that they do get their breaks. But with the emphasis being that when you're here, it's, it's one session. You're engaged, whether they're sitting at the table, whether we're playing on the floor, whether they're in their reinforcement or they're in a break or they're working, it's all one and the same because it's not as simple as, you know, first you do this and then you kind of get your toy and do your own thing. It's really not, that's not how we want it to be. And sometimes just explaining that to the RBT saying, listen, like we're trying to teach this kiddo to be social. And if we're teaching him that his, you know, he's working for, or his reinforcer is to get away from us, what kind of message does that send right now? I mean, we're assuming that, you know, he is motivated by attention and people and all of that kind of stuff. And we want to play on all his breaks, et cetera. Maybe he truly is working so that he can have a break of his own. And that's totally acceptable as well, but let's, you know, pretend and best case scenario is that, you know, all session long, we want this kid engaged 100% of the time. So, you know, really explaining that to the RBT and saying, listen, like, you know, working or learning time isn't just at the table. And we're sending this kiddo the wrong message. If we're saying, okay, go take your break by yourself. And I'm not going to be a part of it, especially, especially, especially if we're trying to get pro-social behavior happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but Shira touched on a really, really great point, And that's RBT burnout. And this isn't even a question, but I could go down this whole rabbit hole as well. Um, we really do need to look at the RBT schedules because these guys are frontline workers and they do such amazing jobs. They're so um, they work so well. And, you know, at the end of a shift, you know, I used to be, you know, a therapist as well. And, you know, at the end of a shift, sometimes I'd be sweating based on the learner, right? Like if you've got a young learner and you're lifting them and you're doing this and you're doing that and you're running from here to there to there, like, whew, like I used to wear layers so that I could like, get down to a t-shirt sometimes because it's, it's tough work, you know, and if an RBT is working for, you know, six or seven or eight hours, you know, you need to look at what their breaks look like. And, you know, some of the RBTs, I work with work in homes. So they do, you know, three hours in one home and then they have to drive and they're often eating lunch in their cars to get to their next client, to go to that next client. And sometimes they're fighting weather to get there and it's stressful, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So looking to see whether or not, you know, this RBT, for instance, has other time to knit, right? We look at our, um, we look at our learners and um, our learners, you know, we always talk about, oh, how do you decrease, you know, negative behavior? You know, we give them a time and a place to do it. Well, we may need to do that with RBTs as well. Mm -hmm. And I think another big piece is model. Like if they're struggling with it, then you get in there and you model. And sometimes they just don't realize. And if you take, you know, the session and show them what that means to like engage and interact during a break, I think that's very valuable. That's huge. And if you can't model, um, consider figuring something else out. And I always joke around about this because, you know, um, you know, a long time ago, I was taught man training, right? We all know man training, um, but we're taught man training and using clickers, right? So, okay, I need a clicker for spontaneous mans and I need a clicker for prompted mans. And, you know, another clicker I can, you know, distinguish between unprompted and spontaneous and a clicker for this. And all of a sudden you've got six clickers going and I jump in there and try and model and there's no way I can do that. Um, so I don't, I don't even require that for my RBTs. So the, the question or the answer is model, model, model. And if you can't do it, you need to modify your expectations because if you as a BCBA can't model what's expected, then they can't do it. Like it's just, it's just not reasonable to even expect that. So this was a great question about sensory social routines. So just, 
any ideas for a sensory social routine that's like fun, engaging, you know, we kind of done the typical peekaboo and itsy bitsy spider. Um, this person's question involved there being somewhat of a pushback from the OT about the tickling and, you know, being upside down and wanting to be respectful of that. But like, what else can we do for an early learner with like limited interests and how to navigate that? So my question was, what's the pushback? Like, is it maybe the age is a factor or is it something else that maybe like the kid shouldn't be upside down or getting that input because they're already, you know, overstimulated that way? I'm not sure what that pushback is. So maybe just politely asking the OT, like, why, right? Like, what's what's the danger in tickling them, having them upside down, et cetera? Now, it could be like the, the physical intrusion, like it just being intrusive to be touched all the time. But that's, I mean, I don't know. Let's find out. But also age is a factor as well, right? Like I have no problem tickling a three-year-old, but I'm not tickling a 10-year-old. You know, I used to work with a 10-year-old and he used to engage in severe negative behavior at school and his EA would say, oh, come here, let me give you a hug to calm you down. And um, the EA was extremely well endowed and this person was 10 or 11 going through puberty. And he's like, this is amazing. (laughs) So of course his tantrums increased because that's what he wanted was that hug from his EA. Um, So, you know, if age is a factor, like if this, you know, if this kid you're working with is a bit older, you're right. Or the OT is right. Like we shouldn't be touching them. You know, I would say even by the age of about seven or so, we start to take a hands-off approach because it gets a little bit inappropriate after that. But what you can be doing is saying like, you know, what types of things do they like? And maybe this person has a very limited repertoire of things because they're a very early learner. Um, But, you know, maybe we can use some objects and what can we do to make those objects silly? Um, You know, I've taken things like stem objects. And what do I mean by a stem object? Like I go to the dollar store and I get, you know, like spinning things or I'll get um, what else, you know, those koosh balls or those little tubes that are filled with water and they've got things in them. Maybe they like those. But it's not really like we talked about before. It's not really just a, okay, here you go. You play with it. But it's like, whoa, I'm playing with it. Whoa, it popped out of my hand. Oh, my goodness, it's behind me. We got to go search for it. That kind of stuff. Um, Sometimes I'll take the ball and stretch it and like tickle them with the balls instead of tickling them with my hands because maybe it's a touch thing. Um, Making that little object fun. Maybe, you know, I'm I'm famous for putting little things like that down kids' shirts if it's appropriate, obviously. Um, But, you know, taking the ball and like, oh, it jumps out of my hand. Oh, no, it's jumping. It's got a personality of its own. And then, oh, no, it goes down your shirt. And you're like, whoa, I got to find it. Um, And being really super fun with things like that. And sometimes just your reaction to making these toys silly and fun um, is enough to get kids kids engaged. Yeah. Like really just be silly. Cause you, I could say do a sensory social routine of, you know, the itsy bitsy spider. And if you are blah about it, like it's no longer a sensory social routine. It's just you singing a song and, you know, like be just super boring, but you could take like a piece of paper and create this like, you know, hysterical interactive sensory social routine where there's that joint attention and the unpredictability and the silliness. And, and that's really what a sensory social routine is. So it's kind of like, look at what this child is into um and just like create a silly routine around it it could just be like putting something silly on your head and it like falls off and they giggle and laugh because it's hysterical um i'll sometimes there's a song where like you bounce like we bounce on on my knee and it's like you know like you just have this really silly ride um or we do sometimes like open and shut them Um, But it's less about like the actual song or the game. And it's more about like, it's just being fun and being silly and tapping into like what the child is into um, and then creating a routine around that. 
And there was always, um, you know, I remember hearing something about um, start with like, just look at what they're into and add one thing, right? So if they really like to hold the ball and watch it drop, and that's all they want to do is take a ball and watch it drop, ball, watch it drop. So do that, you know, take a ball, watch it drop and add one thing. So maybe you put it on your head and they watch it drop. So that's the set. So that's now two steps. So first we put it on our head and then it drops. And then once they're doing that and you're getting a lot of like sensory social engagement, add something else. Well, maybe we first, you know, hide it somewhere and we have to find it and then it goes on our head and we watch it drop. So you're kind of like building these routines step-by-step according to what they're interested in, but you're starting with something that really they chose that they were into. And then you're just building a routine around that. Other things I've done, if they are into toys, then, you know, putting cars down a ramp, but like that could be boring. But what if you make really cool sound effects as you're doing it and you're beep, 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 woo, you know, like just whatever it is, um, making those sound effects, if that's what they're into, you know, building towers and knocking them down. And I'm not building, you know, with blocks, I'm not building this massive tower because it takes too long. You know, maybe I've got the tower built and I put one on it and they, they, they knock it down, or maybe I quickly build the tower and knock it down. So, you know, with these early learners, they don't typically like to wait for things. So keep that in mind. So, you know, if you, you know, you're trying to get, you know, early play, making sure that there's like almost zero wait time before the fun thing happens. And then like Shira said, then you can start adding in one more thing and one more thing to start extending that. Any other thoughts on that or somebody had a question again, back to an early learner. Oh, Plato is great. Yeah. And not just like, okay, let's make a snake now, but actually like you could pound it out into a pancake and, you know, play peekaboo with the Play-Doh or you could have your hand or the learner's hand in the Play-Doh and you can't find the hand and you got to, oh, I found it. Um, that kind of stuff as well. Um, a blanket on um, using a blanket to slide the learner on the floor. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. Taking a blanket is awesome. You know, and they could make like a, Hey, you know, sit on the blanket and I'm going to push you around and go back and forth, etc. cetera. Um, if you've got two people and you've got parent permission, you could take, you know, two corners and the other person could take two corners. You can make this a swing under the blanket. Um, some learners I've used a blanket where some learners really like that deep pressure. So I can roll the child up in a blanket and I call it the hot dog. Um, you can use the blanket as a parachute. So you've got to be under the blanket. You could use it as a, as um, uh, like peek, peekaboo or hide and seek um, bubbles, trampoline finger play. Gosh, I love these ideas, Monica. That's awesome. Stay tuned for next week's podcast, where we continue to discuss some questions from our monthly mentor meetings. Next week, we'll be talking about tolerates losing, appropriate social skills assessments, and how to collect data in a school system. If you've enjoyed this discussion and want to join us live for future mentorship meetings, become a member of the behavior resource at howtoaba.com backslash join. That's howtoaba.com backslash join. Thanks for joining today's conversation. Wherever you get your podcast, please go and subscribe, rate and review so others can find out about us too. For more from How to ABA, including free resources and ABA materials, visit our blog at howtoaba.com and make sure that you're following us on social media for more practical tips and updates.